we're excited about a brand new project, and it's called The Church and the Racial Divide. So Trillia, maybe share a little bit of why, why we're excited about it. Yeah, well, we're excited about it because this is about the church, and it is about the unity of the church. It's about what God says in His Word. It's actually a study. So churches can get together with small groups of people and study God's Word together about this topic. So what other way to not only equip and disciple, but encourage each other to learn more about what God says about racial reconciliation, harmony, unity, and this beautiful picture that we're going to see one day, every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together. Yeah, it's it's Bible teaching, right? I mean, each session takes a passage of Scripture and is taught how it applies to race. You know, the Bible talks quite a bit about race. And what I think is helpful is that this this is okay. People in their local churches opening the Scriptures saying, what does the Bible say about this? This is about God's Word and how we can live and grow together as a people uh, made in His image who have been united through Christ and who will be living and worshiping together forever. If your church is interested in this, uh, you can go to lifeway.com slash the church and the racial divide. You can download it as a video download. You can purchase the kit that has DVDs. There's all kinds of resources for you and your church. So we want to encourage you to get that. Welcome to Capital Conversations, an ERLC podcast from Washington, D.C., I'm your host, Jeff Pickering. Around the table on Capital Conversations, you'll hear from the policy team of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, as well as featured guests from outside our D.C. office. Our conversations cover the policy debates and news shaping our world as we aim to connect our Christian theological motivations to political engagement in Washington. This week, I am joined by my colleague, Stephen Harris. Stephen, how are you doing? Doing well. Good to be here. Yeah, glad to have you back. Uh, and we are joined from Nashville, our colleague, Brent Leatherwood. Brent, do we have you? You have me, my brothers. Good to be on with you. Yeah, good to, good to speak with you, Brent. I'm. Uh, this is one of those episodes where we are going to dip back into your, uh, your prior career in politics to talk about what in the world is happening on the campaign trail. So we are recording this the Thursday after the Iowa caucus. This podcast will likely come out the Monday before the New Hampshire primary. So right in the sweet spot of the kickoff to the 2020 presidential primary campaign. And Brent, when you and I first talked about doing this podcast, we just thought, okay, uh, we're going to record. It'll be maybe the day after the Iowa caucuses. We'll get it out there. All will be well. And then... What in the world happened on Monday night during the Iowa caucus? That's right. The 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 best laid plans of of mice and men, right? Just all that went out out the window. <laughs> totally out the window. And and it it's still we're recording on Thursday. So many days later, and we still don't have a hundred percent of the results in. So uh just in case yeah. some of our listeners aren't the sort of uh, political enthusiasts that uh, that we are uh, here around around this table right now. Brent, why don't you just give us sort of a, a high level view of of what happened on Monday and 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 how we got to where we are today and why we are joking about what in the world happened with the Iowa caucus? Sure. Well, I should also point out that uh, since I'm one of the co-hosts of the ERLC podcast, that uh, 
this is actually kind of like our first crossover event. It's it's like X Men and Avengers coming together. <laughs> Stephen, which or, or one something are we? like that? Which one should we be? X Men uh, or Avengers? Avengers. I mean, okay. You know, let's. Yeah. Oh come on! They they only had the like biggest movie in history. I mean, well, that, that was an easy one. Well, yeah, that's. that's I true. mean, I I mean that's okay because that means I'm I'm Wolverine, and so I'm I'm totally cool with that. All right, all right, all right. Well, that's so. We'll we'll have to we'll have to ask Josh and Lindsay who they are later, but uh, Travis gets to be Beast. <laughs> or something like that. Okay. We, okay. We've really well, taken we, we, we've we, taken this analogy way too far. All right, yeah, so let's we, talk about the Iowa caucuses, better known this week as the the Iowa debacle. <laughs> so uh, essentially, what happens uh, at the beginning of each presidential calendar since 1972 is the Iowa caucuses. It's not a primary because that is reserved for our fellow citizens up in the state of New Hampshire. Uh, so what they do in Iowa is they get together in these little small town and community meetings called caucus meetings. Uh, caucus is uh, what most people think is kind of like an old Native American word from uh, indigenous Native Americans in the area. And it just simply means small meetings. And so that's that's actually what happens in, in Iowa. Folks from around different neighborhoods and towns get together and they decide what presidential candidate – they are going to support. And so if you just describe it like that, it actually is not too hard. And typically, uh, this is not a hard process to figure out uh, who is voting for whom and then how many delegates those uh, respective presidential candidates uh, will get. But after the 2016 election cycle, there were a number of changes to the rules that were put in place nationally by folks who were supportive of Senator Sanders, uh, who came up just short in trying to take the nomination away from former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. Those rules, some of them were very pertinent to Iowa. Uh, So Iowa had to deal with a number of new changes and to uh, try and add an additional layer of complexity onto this. They wanted to introduce a new app for folks who are actually running and managing the caucuses to help them report in those uh, results. Well, you have all these rule changes. You have volunteers who are largely unfamiliar with this new technology because that app only got revealed in the last couple of days before these caucus meetings took place. And what you have is a recipe for a disaster. And so as we are talking right now, Uh, We still, as you mentioned, we still don't have 100% of the precincts reporting. I think when I last looked, it was about 95%. So uh, even even now, uh, all the results are not yet in from Iowa, which is, um, that's why I called it a debacle, because there really is no other way to describe what happened in Iowa. Right. So before before we talk about the results, which since we do have them now and we waited to record this so that we could actually uh, offer something of value that wouldn't become immediately pointless once people actually started listening to this podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> uh, and we'll get to that. But I do want to, because it has, it, 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 it really has shaped the entire kickoff to the to the Democrats' presidential nominating process. I mean, we there's so much anticipation leading up, leading up to Iowa. Candidates have been there. Some candidates like like John Delaney, who didn't quite make it to even caucus night. He dropped out a few days before, uh, but he was the first one to announce that he was running. Former congressman. Uh, he, he's been in Iowa for more than a year. 
more than a year. And uh, one of the some of the commentary uh, that I've heard on the various podcasts and, and articles that I that I follow related to the presidential campaign is folks who who they themselves, either as journalists or as campaign staffers, have also been in Iowa for previous election cycles. They continue to talk about what a shame this debacle has been, particularly for those those people who have given up a year of their life to be in Iowa, to meet the people of Iowa, travel around all the counties in Iowa, volunteer, give up. Some people, you know, are, are in a gap year between like between their uh, university and, and their and their career. Others, you know, are just scraping by uh, to be a reporter on the ground and everybody gave it all up for nothing. It's like collectively as a, as a nation and as a, you know, group of people involved who are invested in this, like needed to sneeze and then just couldn't. I mean, it was just awful. Yeah. And, and mm-hmm. Brent, has anything like this ever happened before in Iowa? Not to this extent. So uh, there was a very uh, close election that occurred in the 2012 Republican side. Now, the, Re- the Republicans do have different rules than the, the Democrats do, but they both at their core are uh, functioning as a caucus. There was a very close vote that took place on the Republican side, and uh, eventually it came out uh, about 24 hours later uh, that they had actually said that the wrong person had won, and actually former Senator Rick Santorum uh, had won. It was a razor-thin margin, uh, so it actually took until all 100% of the precincts had come in, and I think they even conducted a recount before they finally settled uh, on Rick Santorum having actually won. So that's the the closest uh, that it's come. This this was just a, a widespread kind of disaster. And honestly, I think it has three implications. Uh, one that's immediate uh, for these presidential candidates, one that's more longer term for Iowa itself. And then there's, there's one that's kind of at the 30,000 foot level, uh, a cultural uh, issue that's occurred here. So for the for the candidates, generally Iowa is seen as you get three tickets coming out of Iowa: first class, uh, business class, and economy class. Well, now because there has been such a muddled collection of results here, all the candidates are claiming in some form or fashion kind of victory. And hey, we're able to move forward into New Hampshire and further down the political calendar. And that that just means that the the picture has just not gotten any any clarity here uh, for for these candidates and for voters in these future states that are looking at it. For Iowa, honestly, Iowa and its place as the opening state was already kind of on shaky ground. There's a number of people out there uh, that have misgivings about it going first. Um, and so they think other states should actually be given kind of that privileged status of going first. And there's been some reforms that have been talked about. This sort of of uh, event where all eyes are focused on Iowa is only going to make sure that those voices get the ammunition that they need, uh, potentially to to actually supplant Iowa as the first state. But then culturally, I, I think one of the bigger concerns we have, we are in society right now facing a crisis of trust at institutions of all levels. This is only going to deepen uh, that distrust that we are seeing uh, across the cultural landscape. And that's not a good thing for a political system that has to have a healthy dose of trust to, to work effectively. 
Brent, I, I think those are those are really good points that you're making, and uh, we are actually going to be talking to uh, to a friend of ours uh, who is a, a journalist for Yahoo News, John Ward, for next week's episode of Capital Conversations yeah. about what what the Iowa debacle means uh, for and, and how it's really uh, just just one of many examples of failing institutions all around us in the public square. And John, and John Ward, John has been an incredible voice who has been pointing at the failure of institutions left yes. and right as a, as a major problem that our culture needs to address. So man, what a, what a timely interview that is going to be. With yeah. John. Yeah. I'm excited. Uh, I'm, I'm excited for that. And, uh, and listeners, listeners should be as well. John is, John is, a, a great journalist and a, and a good friend of the organization. So I'm excited to, to talk with him more and, and, you know, as somebody who's been, who's been looking at this for a while. But so for the immediate results, we do have the results. So I'll, I'll just run through, uh, run through the, the top lineup here. Uh, it looks like with, as, as you said, at, at time of recording this, we have 96% reporting. And Pete Buttigieg, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, uh, a rookie presidential candidate, this is his first time running for president, uh, looks like he won Iowa. He is in. He is in first place by a razor thin uh, by a razor thin margin. Uh, his percentage right now is twenty six point two percent. And and in second place, but almost first place B is uh, is Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders with twenty six point one percent. So both of them look to be taking right now eleven delegates away from the process. So almost basically a tie, but it still would be amazing for Mayor Buttigieg or former Mayor Buttigieg if he is, if he is in first place. And then Senator Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, she's in third, eighteen point two percent, looks to be taking five delegates in fourth place. Former Vice President and still, uh, according to polls, national polling frontrunner Joe Biden. Uh, with 15.8%. And then in fifth place, uh, Senator from Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar, with 12.2% of the vote. Uh, Neither uh, Senator Klobuchar or former Vice President Biden will be receiving a delegate uh, based on those percentages at the results I'm looking at. And then Andrew Yang's got a percent of the vote. Uh, And then uh, billionaire Tom Steyer, I don't really know how else to describe him, uh, has 0.3%, everybody else at, at zero, which there are still a lot of other people in this race, which is just, it's just so, it's it's so crazy to me. So, uh, mm-hmm. so Brent, what do, what do we make of, of this, of this lineup and the way that it looks like Iowa, Iowa has voted here? What, what does that mean? How are these campaigns thinking about where they placed? Yeah. So, you know, again, generally coming out of Iowa, it, the delegate count that you get is ultimately not that important because this is just a fraction of the overall delegates that will be awarded through this process, particularly on the Democratic side, where they will be awarded on a proportional basis by and large uh, as they go through future caucuses and primaries. But that said, uh, you know, Mayor Buttigieg, uh, you know, he claimed he was the most audacious on election night, close to midnight, when he came out and said, we're moving forward uh, victoriously. It it looks like um, his internal numbers uh, showed him that he could go out there and and actually claim that because he is either going to come out of Iowa, it appears, in first place or very close to first place. Uh, so that is really remarkable. If you just step back and think about it, uh, a small town Midwestern mayor uh, has truly come out of nowhere and has won or is close to winning the Iowa caucus. Uh, that's just a pretty amazing uh, American story. 
Similarly, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, he may very well win this or be very close to winning it. And he is a self-described uh, democratic socialist. Um, that That is just amazing that we are living in a time in America where someone who is, uh, you know, outwardly, publicly, uh, unapologetically using the term socialism uh, to describe themselves and their policies has uh, come close or may in fact win uh, a major political battle. That is just amazing. For the other candidates, you know, Senator Warren, uh, it seemed like she was going to be kind of in the catbird seat in Iowa for a long time, but her support has cratered there. And for Vice President Biden, you know, most folks didn't weren't paying this close attention to it, but he was actually reshuffling resources out of New Hampshire and South Carolina, where he's seen as as fairly strong, and and investing them in Iowa, in the latter stages of this campaign in Iowa. So his his team uh, evidently had seen something in their data to suggest that that's where they should be investing more of their dollars. And the fact that he came in fourth place, I mean, he's got 100% name ID. He's the former vice president of, on the Democratic side, a very popular previous president. For him to finish fourth there, I think is concerning if you're on his campaign or you're a supporter of his, no doubt about it. Yeah, I mean, I think I think these results were surprising for everyone, even if you, you know, are a huge fan of Buttigieg or Sanders. Um, as I think about the surprising nature of the, this outcome, I'm always trying to conversely ask myself why I should not be surprised and have struggled to come up with with answers for that. But it's interesting. I mean, for me, the, the Sanders possibility, depending on how the numbers fall, came to my mind the quickest because I, I think for a number of different reasons, you know, Bernie Sanders in his last run initiated what can only be described as a kind of, it was kind of a, a grassroots movement. And the Sanders campaign previously injected questions, kind of critical questions about uh, equality, about race, about um, the country standing in the world, um, and, and a whole host of other things, uh, injected those questions and made them a part of the national conversation in ways that really just incited all of this energy, particularly from the younger facets of of, of that movement. Um, and that that has has endured. I think what is surprising to people is that that energy was able to sustain itself through a a, a former. Um, loss, you know, not making it to the to the White mm-hmm. House uh, mm-hmm. uh, to through a uh, what was a kind of rough beginning of a second campaign through even some health challenges all the way to Iowa. <laughs> uh, yeah. So yeah, so it, it. I mean, it is remarkable that he is a candidate who had a heart attack in the midst of a campaign. Yeah, and for I, I think all previous campaign uh, and in, in history throughout. Uh, America, that would have been seen as okay. Your your campaign is clearly over. That's right. That's right. Uh, he he's actually <laughs> somehow he's been able to use that to his advantage. Right. 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 And so I think you know it, it's it's just been fascinating to watch. And and I and I agree. I and mean, I know a, a couple people who who work for the Biden campaign, and you know disappointments all around. Um, and then people kind of 
you know, pivot to, you know, and we'll probably get into this, questions about Iowa and why is Iowa first and Iowa's 90% white and is this, you know, all of those questions, which I think are relevant questions, uh, but then they become injected into um, the the rhetorics around the reasons for why the outcomes were the way that they were. And so it just, it becomes even more complex on top of what was, we already talked about, a, you know, a failing app that is really to blame for can you who who's the designer right can you imagine the whoever like no the, I, well i can't imagine but yeah. then i get i i get very nervous and clammy and, yeah. <laughs> and very right. stressed uh it is so stressful to imagine uh my wife works in in technology and i know uh and in in for an app for retail and i know what that's like when it goes down on black friday or yep. something and yep. it is just so stressful and i to to watch all of these national news correspondents on the ground, not to mention it was just such a uh, such a case study in how not to handle a crisis. Uh, the fact that they did not have anybody out in front of the press trying to get out ahead of it, uh, which which then just led to the most irresponsible of disinformation, misinformation, uh, people within people within the Republican Party saying, you know, using this as an opportunity to say, oh, it must be rigged. And I mean, at a time when our institutions are are so mistrusted to so further mistrust is is was disappointing to see, but also totally expected when you're talking about a political right. situation. Uh, but you know, it, it, it was just incompetence on top of incompetence and, and so stressful that it was in it, that it was an app at the center of it all that, uh, that the more, the more reporting that's come out this week, the more stressful, honestly, it got, I mean, the idea that only a quarter of their volunteers throughout the state that were supposed to be using the app that day had even downloaded it before the day of right. uh, the caucus, right. just crazy. That, that is totally crazy. Steven, you, you are absolutely right to point out that Senator Sanders, has absolutely been able to build an enduring kind of coalition uh, with his base, and they will follow him wherever he goes. And the uh, the more immediate way that that has an impact, though, for his campaign is they are also willing to donate to him continuously. Mm. And um, that is a broad group of folks that, you know, just $20, $50 at a time has been able to uh, power his campaign, and other candidates don't have that financial base of support uh, from a small dollar perspective like he does, mm-hmm. and that's going to be important going forward. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I agree. So, Brent, let's let's talk about going forward. What what comes next in the in the primary process? I mean, you you started out here in New Hampshire. Comes next, so uh, we'll be this podcast as folks are listening. If they're listening the day it publishes, uh, it will it will publish on Monday. New Hampshire will come right after that on Tuesday. What should we expect for those of us who are going to be watching uh, the New Hampshire results? That is that is not a caucus. It is just a primary, correct? That is just a primary, and the primary is um, is actually run by the the state itself. So it's a it's a joint operation between uh, the state government and the party itself. But what you should expect there is uh, New Hampshire is the state that really propelled uh, Senator Sanders forward in 2016. Most analysts expect that he is going to be able to continue. Uh, with his strong support there. Uh, At the same time, though, there is some recent polling that suggests that uh, Mayor Buttigieg is getting uh, a boost out of uh, these Iowa results. And so he is somewhat closing the gap. You know, I think for the rest of the candidates, you're really starting to take a long, hard look at, okay, what is my, my pathway forward here? 
So a number of, of folks have suggested that Vice President Biden uh, is, is essentially waiting until South Carolina. I, I got to tell you, I'm not sure that that is based in reality. He needs a good, strong showing in New Hampshire to be able to provide the fuel to get him uh, to South Carolina because Nevada happens in between New Hampshire and, and South Carolina. For Senator Warren, she is a senator that represents the state right next door, that Boston media market gets about 85% of New Hampshire. Uh, and so if she does not have a, a strong showing in New Hampshire, uh, that's that's going to be a very tough blow for her. In addition, you have other candidates uh, like Senator Klobuchar, uh, Andrew Yang, Tom Steyer, uh, where if if they're not getting some really positive results out of New Hampshire, it, it does begin to uh, become a time where you are questioning, is it viable? Uh, for us to be moving forward. And not to mention, for all of these candidates, you've got former Mayor uh, Michael Bloomberg, who is uh, really doing some some hard work in the Super Tuesday states where he sees that as kind of his uh, bulwark uh, moving forward. So this is a fascinating time if you are a former political operative like me or just a political nerd in general to be watching these candidates and their respective campaigns make their moves on what is essentially a 50-state chessboard. Brent, I appreciate that. And it's always uh, helpful for me to hear your insight into uh, not only the the kind of the, the technical aspects of how this works, but one, one of the one of the things, and th- th- this is a question that, um, that has emerged because of what happened with the Iowa caucus, and it would be helpful for me to hear, and I'm sure for our listeners, can you talk a little bit about the fact that in Iowa and New Hampshire, as you just articulated, right, how you do in these these states, the prospective nature of those results and and what that's rooted in, the legitimacy of that. Because again, you know, those campaigns that are not doing so well or didn't do so well in Iowa are kind of banking on that, well, Iowa doesn't tell the whole story. You know, my coalition is still very diverse. And, you know, I there's still a lot of room and opportunity for us to prove that you know, we're going to do well. Talk to us a little bit about the fundamentals of if you win Iowa, then that's a pretty good prospect that, you know, you might go all the way or how you do in Iowa and New Hampshire. Like what, where does that come from and why is that kind of baked into how this works? I have to do well here or else I can't do well anywhere else. Or it, it prospectively demonstrates that I might that I might not do well anywhere else. Well, winning winning Iowa and, and to an extent New Hampshire is, again, because they are smaller states and because on the Democratic side especially, they award their delegates proportionally, um, it's less about harvesting actual delegates and more about establishing momentum so that you get into those larger states that are delegate-rich. And so if you fail to have a good showing in those states, you're losing out on that momentum, and that uh, eats over into your fundraising momentum. And so campaigns move forward so long as they have the resources to move forward. And so that's ultimately where those those candidates who did not uh, do as well in Iowa, uh, Senator Warren, Vice President Biden, uh, Senator Klobuchar, if they're not able to tell their base of support, be it voters or donors, that, hey, we've got a clear path to move forward here, Uh, that drop in enthusiasm can really hurt your bank account. And if you're not able to move forward, then you just, you're not able to collect those votes in those later states. As far as, you know, why Iowa and New Hampshire, 
are able to establish themselves, uh, you know, kind of right out of the gate. You know, honestly, it's a it's a relatively recent tradition, uh, particularly from from Iowa's standpoint. So they became the the first in the country to go only in 1972. And what put them on the map is that they propelled uh, former President Jimmy Carter uh, to the nomination. Um, and that was seen as a, as a shocker uh, by many folks. As a matter of fact, most folks don't realize this, actually uncommitted outperformed Jimmy Carter. Un- uncommitted actually came in first uh, in that presidential caucus. But he was able to uh, take that placement uh, in Iowa and really use that to his advantage and propel himself forward to the Democratic nomination and ultimately to the White House. There's a number of folks that uh, can level, I think, legitimate critiques at Iowa uh, going first or New Hampshire being the first uh, primary in the country. I I will say this. There is something about uh, Iowa that does make sense in terms of it forces your campaign to get organized. And if you can't get organized, if you can't go out there, get people to pledge to support you, and then on caucus night, uh, convince more voters who are showing up at those caucuses to come and caucus with your candidate, it it will show. I mean, that that's the thing about Iowa that in all these conversations about other states maybe wanting to go first, Iowa makes you show your work. And it makes you show how organized you can be on the ground. And I think that that is a valuable proving ground because ultimately the November general election is 50 different state elections going on at once. And you need to have your act together. You need to have uh, a really robust plan for identifying voters, persuading voters, and then ultimately turning them out. And so Basically, what I would say is if you can't do that in a smaller state like Iowa, which, yes, it has outsized influence on the nominating process, but if you cannot do that in a state like Iowa, that probably bodes ill for you uh, for being a successful general election candidate with 50 different campaigns that are going on at once. Mm, yeah, perfectly appreciate that. It's also I, another defense I've heard of of Iowa and and in some in some cases New Hampshire as well. Even though New Hampshire is a primary, is that they're small enough states to where you can't just come in through a, a airwaves and tarmac campaign and sort of buy your way up uh, up into victory. It really does. They are states where retail politics is really valued and. Uh, it just it always fascinates me how when when Iowans or new or folks in New Hampshire are interviewed and they're asked about their candidate preferences, something those who are really leaning in and interested will say is, "Well, I haven't had a chance to hear from all of them yet." And it's just this amazing, amazing concept for those of us who've never lived in either one of those early primary states uh, that that these are people who are actually going to physically see in a small group of people. Uh, presidential candidates making their pitch for why they ought to be elected to 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And that's, that's right. That's pretty unique. And, and uh, you know, I mean, the idea of a, of a big national primary would, would really, would really change that. So um, there is something cool about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and we should, we should point out the malfunctioning app and the, uh, the Democratic State Party in Iowa, its, uh, its PR reaction uh, and the missteps there, that is not a reflection at all on, on Iowans uh, or, in the future, New Hampshireites uh, who take 
their duty very seriously in meeting with these candidates, uh, really parsing their message and drilling down on issues with them. They, they take that civic duty in both those respective states very seriously. And so there, there's nothing to suggest here that Iowans didn't do their typical due diligence on the Democratic side in, in trying to figure out uh, which of these candidates should earn their support. And the same will be true in, in New Hampshire. And you're right. There, there's something about getting up close and personal with your presidential candidates that I think is, is really unique uh, to America. When you look out across the globe and you see the way that uh, other leaders are selected, there are very few instances where the common person is getting up close and personal uh, with those candidates. And so that that's also going to happen, uh, we should point out, in Nevada, where they will have a caucus uh, in the following week, and then in South Carolina in the primary there, where candidates have, have already been going up to now. So these first four states, uh, by virtue of where they are on the calendar, they they do their homework and make these candidates uh, prove their mettle. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and so after these these first four early states in February, the first Tuesday of March, uh, you will often hear referred to as Super Tuesday. And it's Super Tuesday because there are 14 states that have their uh, that have their primaries. Uh, there are a few. I think there's a few caucuses. Like, uh, isn't uh, isn't Texas's Democratic side a caucus, Brent? Uh, yeah, I, my understanding is, is we're actually down, The Economist was reporting last week that, that we're actually down to only three states choosing a, a caucus route. Oh, interesting. So yeah, it's, uh, it's far fewer. I think there yeah. were 14 yeah, okay. uh, who, who did so in 2016. So actually okay, there wow, are far fewer changing. states doing a caucus this time. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah. I, I, I didn't realize the numbers had swung that dramatically in that direction. So, so anyway, on, on March 3rd, there are a lot of delegates up for grabs, uh, uh, former New York City Mayor Michael Bloomberg is just spending unreal gobs of money flooding the airways. I mean, it's impossible to watch YouTube videos or turn on turn on cable news in any of these in any of these Super Tuesday uh, primary states and not see and not see ads uh, for Michael Bloomberg. So March is huge. March is when most of these contests are going to be had, and March is is probably when we're going to have a pretty good idea about how the race. Uh, how the race on the Democratic side is is shaping up. As for the race on the Republican side, which yes, uh, there is even when even when one party uh, currently has a president in the White House, as is true with the Republicans with Donald Trump right now, there is still a nominating process to renominate that person. But something interesting is going on on the Republican side. And Brent, I'm just curious if you could speak to this. Uh, so far, nine states, Alaska, Arizona, Georgia, Hawaii, Kansas, Minnesota, Nevada, South Carolina, and Wisconsin have all canceled their primaries and are sending their delegates to President Trump for his reelection without without any votes being cast. Um, Brent, that's unusual, is it not? Yeah, it is. Let, let me go back to one thing you said, though. After Super Tuesday, we, we probably will have uh, some additional clarity on that side. But uh, unless one candidate really catches fire, we have to keep in mind on the Democratic side of the nominating aisle, they award their delegates proportionally. So if there may be a candidate who is consistently doing well, but so long as other candidates, A, remain in the race and are placing, shall we say, in a, a top two or three, they're also going to be awarded delegates. So theoretically, and we saw this in 2016 on the Republican side, there may come a time where the candidate more or less uh, pauses 
electoral operations from the state campaign side of things, but they are still being awarded delegates because they are placing high enough to get awarded delegates. And that may mean that their operations uh, come back to life during the Democratic National Convention, which will take place in July in Milwaukee. So we may have clarity, but we may also have this process playing out for, for quite some time on the, on the Democratic side. So, yeah, on the Republican side, a, a number of states ha- have, have taken uh, this step. It does seem quite odd. Uh, but on the Republican side, there are more states that are winner-take-all. So if one candidate finishes first, that candidate will be the one who is awarded all the state delegates. So so functionally, uh, it, it, it probably doesn't have as big of an impact. It, it does seem odd, though, that a, uh, a party apparatus, which exists to identify voters for your general election candidate in November, and the best way to identify voters is to have them vote. It, it does seem odd that you would foreclose that option uh, because to me that actually becomes a, a limiting uh, data point uh, for your nominee in the fall. So, I, you know, the best predictor of how a voter will vote will be the way that they voted previously. So it to me, just structurally, it, it seems odd that you would deny your voters the ability to give you their their data. But, you know, I'm no longer running a, a party apparatus, so uh, my views really don't mean much. Would you have ever canceled a primary, Brent? Tennessee uh, did not uh, cancel its primary. I can't imagine that that was ever in the cards here. Uh, but apparently other states feel differently, and uh, that's the way our system works. Right. All right. So speaking of data, what what suggestions do you have for folks who do want to want to follow polling uh, throughout this process? Where, where are some good Where are some good sites, uh, and who are some good journalists that you would suggest folks follow? Yeah. So I was thinking about this. So four journalists that I definitely would highlight. Um, one is Amy Walter. Uh, she is the the national editor at the Cook Political Report. Uh, it's an organization started by Charlie Cook many years ago, and it is fantastic. Amy Walter. Uh, looks at everything from a national perspective. And uh, I even highlighted her earlier this week on Twitter. Uh, she just has consistently some of the best analysis. As a matter of fact, she was talking about that loss of trust in institutions and and how Iowa, what happened there, is only going to further that. Similarly, her colleague at Cook Political Port, uh, Dave Wasserman, he is one of the best uh, minds for numbers and so definitely would give Dave Wasserman a follow on your social media account. Certainly Josh uh, Krashauer, uh, f- he is the uh, politics editor uh, at National Journal, uh, has been a longtime person who is looking at the impact of these campaigns on policy and uh, just a, a great follow on social media. And then finally, honestly, probably the most fun follow of any of these names is going to be Jonathan Martin. He's the national political reporter for the New York Times. And he just he just knows uh, all these random tidbits and facts from previous campaigns. And that sort of perspective, I think, is always helpful as you are trying to make sense of everything that's going on around you. So, so yeah, Amy Walter, Dave Wasserman, Josh Kreshauer, and Jonathan Martin are must-follows for anybody who's interested in following this. And then you asked about sites, uh, two that I think are just 
indispensable are Axios and uh, Politico's playbook. Uh, I get both of those newsletters first thing in the morning. They're they're calling the best information, most relevant information from the world of politics and putting it right in my inbox each morning. Uh, if you are interested in actually staying up to speed on this, I think both of them are indispensable outlets. And both of them, uh, Mike Allen had his hand in in starting. And early on in my time here yeah, in that's DC, right. I uh, my wife and I were out to dinner, and I saw Mike Allen come in the restaurant. And I told my wife, I "said Oh my goodness, that's that's Mike <laughs> Allen because he's not a he's he's a really unique guy, and you don't you don't usually see him out and about unless it's unless it's one of their events." And he went into the restaurant. I didn't exactly see where he where he went. I'm I I like to think he was meeting with a source on background, you know, <laughs> and. And uh, on his way out, I was able to stop him, and he and Dr. Moore uh, are friends. Mike is a Mike is a great guy, and uh, it, it's it's remarkable what he's done. And, and I was just telling him how thankful I was for their for their work and their reporting at at Axios. Mike Mike used to uh, Mike used to be at Politico and is now is now at Axios, which is which is a really young news company. I mean, they started in in, in 2017 and and they're it's 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 cool that a that a longtime professional in this world like you, Brent, recognize that they've really put themselves uh, right at the center of of indispensable news sources. And uh and Mike was was very gracious when I was just, you know, when I when I told him that even back in, in 2017, that wow, I mean what you guys are doing at Axios is just is just incredible. So I think those are great recommendations. And their big thing is is smart brevity. So right. uh, they want to get you the information that is most relevant in the most concise way possible. Right. And in with all of us having busy lives these days, uh, that's a that's a really important trait to have. That's exactly right. Uh, so last question here, uh, Stephen. Maybe we can start with you, and then Brent, you can you can close us out in response. How can Christians in such a hyper partisan season uh, that this election year is sure to be? How can Christians be salt and light in their communities with their neighbors who might see politics differently? Yeah, I think the first thing that popped in my head is to 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 listen well and listen charitably. I think one of the things that is a characteristic of our political discourse these days is immense passion. And there's seemingly no greater offense or one of the greatest offenses these days is if I'm passionate about something and in dialogue with you, you don't seem to care, you don't seem to understand, you don't seem to want to care. Um, you seem to be critiquing what I'm passionate about. And why I'm, right? it, it just, it, it's, it's this utter breakdown. And I think Christians can actually demonstrate a kind of distinctive posture when they commit themselves to listening well and listening charitably. And then also, I mean, I, I, I'll, I'll always point this out, affirming what is, I think, a very, it, it's, it's a, a, a very, or something that should be prized characteristic and evidence of the image of God in in all of us that we are created in such a way that that I am going to demonstrate a kind of moral passion and concern when I feel like I see something that is unjust or when I feel like I need to advocate on behalf of something or someone I think we often skip over that and go immediately to the critique of what it is that uh, that person is is concerned about or how they're going about it and fail to recognize. So I, I actually I actually want to acknowledge and appreciate the fact that that there is something that moves you like this, that that oftentimes is other focused, right? Uh, I think that's when it's even in it in it in the best sense of of what I'm talking about, when it is it is obviously other focused. 
that. You know, I'm concerned about uh, how we as a country treat X, Y, and Z, and da, 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 da. Regardless of how you feel about your analysis of that, I think it's just one one small evidence of of of, of God's image on us when we see that that kind of impulse, um, because I think that reflects something that we were distinctly created to reflect. And, and then we can have conversation about, you know, how people's radars may need to be tweaked or whatever. That gets into kind of policy stuff. But I think I think refusing to jump so quickly over the 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 evidences of our commonness as image bearers that reflect itself in the the discourses that we have about politics, I think Christians could be distinctive in in acknowledging that and cherishing that uh, in those in those times. That's so good, Brent. Well, you know, Stephen, I, I I loved what you said there. Listen well and and listen charitably. In our day and age, we don't do enough listening. Uh, it's just constant, either reaction or more likely, it's just constant outrage. You know, and when when I look at my former colleagues who are are in the political space still, I I, I see a lot of them who are signaling to their audiences that um, your opponents are a danger to you and and everything just seems so apocalyptic. And that's that's not the way that that Christians should react. Our, our political opponents, people who may disagree with us on on certain policy views, they are not a threat uh, that is to be excised from the public square. that that is not the way that we should treat them. Instead, we should, treat them as fellow citizens who are traveling along with us in this grand American experiment. And, um, you know, Dr. Moore, he, he talks about this uh, from a number of different ways. I certainly think it applies here. We should be people who uh, view politics with uh, an engaged distance. We should certainly be leaning in here because these public policy matters, these decisions that we make uh, at the polls, those are important decisions for our time that God has placed us here for. But at the same time, we also need to to stand back from that. And I'm going to re- repeat a kind of a well-worn phrase. It's not original to me, but our, our future is, is not going to be determined by uh, a donkey or by an elephant. It's going to be determined, and in fact, it already has been determined by a lamb. And that's what we need to keep front and center uh, on our hearts as we are processing these very chaotic uh, political times that that we live in, but we need to engage with an assurity uh, that we know how this is all going to turn out. And so that's that would be the way that I would counsel uh, my fellow Americans uh, to approach this, and particularly my fellow Christians, because these are important issues, and these what these candidates are saying and what they represent that is important for us to sit with and make decisions uh, based on. But at the same time, we also have to know that our future has already been secured. That is so good, Brent uh, and Stephen. Thanks so much for for your word on that, and as people who do who do value political engagement and value uh, the policymaking processes here in Washington, D.C. The Southern Baptist Convention has us as the ERLC right here on 2nd Street next to the Supreme Court and to the Capitol building, and we are engaged before the administration as well. We know that these things are not ultimate. We know that the result of the 2020 presidential campaign is not the ultimate decider of our future. And as, and as Dr. Moore reminds us in his book Onward, 
We can actually be Americans best when we are not Americans first. Our citizenship is in Christ's kingdom first and foremost. And so so we are able to engage and we are able to to listen charitably to our neighbors and and to see the common good in all that are being involved in in, in this process when we have that kind of confidence in Christ. And, and both of you gentlemen uh, exhibit that to me uh, daily here in our work, and I appreciate you so much joining us for this conversation. As a kickoff to the primary season, I'm sure we'll uh, we'll have another we'll have another conversation maybe after maybe after Super Tuesday. I feel like you and Brent got a chance to preach a sermonette, and so I didn't get to do that. And so I feel like <laughs> I, I feel like I should take a text, but I'm not. But I'm just gonna say, you know, I gave a little limited. Little, no, I little, think I think what you gave was really really good discourse on listening, and you know, y'all talking about lambs. And oh my goodness! Okay, oh, eschatological, man. you know, visions. And all right, all right. Well, we're gonna we're gonna shut this thing down before we get too far off the rails, uh, Stephen. One thing I consistently hear is, man, y'all need to have Stephen Harris uh, on on Capital Conversations. Amen more to often. that. Yes, everybody agrees you're a crowd favorite, but. Uh, I appreciate you joining me for if this. If you have your yes, Bible. <laughs> more of Stephen Harris. We need that right, honorable yes, gentleman yes. on this podcast more. Yes, so. that is right. All right. Well, speaking of right, honorable gentlemen, Brent, thank you so much uh, for, for joining us on Capital Conversations. Uh, thank you also uh, for those of you who, who listen along every week. Please, uh, as a reminder, remember to subscribe to us. And uh, if you feel so inclined, give us a rating and review. This really will help others find our show. Uh, and if you found uh, what we what we talked about helpful, um, you can find Find more information in the show notes with links to these journalists that Brent mentioned, as well as the newsletters. We appreciate you joining us on Capital Conversations, ERLC's podcast from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm.